turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great show today. Great show. Two uh, writers, authors, one, an investigative journalist, uh, Natalie Winters from the NationalPulse.com. She'll be with us, and she's got a piece that they dug up. Uh, basically, it was Obama, the Obama administration. Excuse me, not even the Obama administration. It turns out it was Obama when he was a U.S. senator who was doing the bio labs in the Ukraine. And yet now everybody's denying, I don't know, anything exists. We'll see what she has to say about that. A piece that's gotten a lot of attention at the NationalPulse.com. And we'll also speak with Brandon, Brandon Weikert. Brandon Weikert um, is the author of Winning Space, a great book on uh, space, um, the importance of it, uh, why it matters for warfare, why it matters for commerce. Uh, Winning Space from Republic Book Publishers, Brandon Weikert. We the Brandon is his Twitter feed, at We the Brandon. Great guy. We'll talk with him about what's going on in the Ukraine. He's got a great Twitter feed. It's really worth um, uh, listening to him on Twitter or reading him on Twitter because he's he is um, neither here nor there, neither right nor left. He's just listening and making sense a lot of times and, uh, and certainly making you think. So uh, check that out. Okay. Uh, Today, what you need to know after a long weekend, I hope you had a great weekend. Um, We have a story that I saw on Friday and I let it percolate in my brain all weekend. And it it, it relates to an essay, an article, an essay written in the Washington Post, or I should say published in the Washington Post by Lawrence Tribe, the famous uh, Harvard law professor. He's now in his 80s. He's been an advisor to Bill Clinton. He was very close to um, the Biden administration, excuse me, the Obama administration. And he's personally close with Joe Biden. Joe Biden has talked about calling him and talking to him. Well, he wrote a piece in the Washington Post, and he says how important it is for uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland to utilize the independent counsel uh, 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 statute and to appoint, like Mueller was, but another one, this time appoint someone to investigate uh, whether how Donald Trump was the force behind January 6th and how it was treasonous and insurrectionist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes into all kinds of details about what he sees as the reason to do this, the predicate, why, if it's done like this, then the president can't fire him, no matter who the president is, um, no matter what happens. This, this guy has all this power, like Durham does right now, to be honest. It's true. It lasts outside of the sort of politics. I'm not sure, by the way, it's a good thing. I don't know if in the long run, whether you like it or the idea of Durham getting to the bottom of it, or you like the idea, if you're a lefty, of, 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 of Merrick Garland appointing someone to, to get to the bottom of whatever. It, it, it's not exactly – the attorney general works for the uh, president. That's how the system's supposed to work. If you don't like it and you think it's corrupt, you vote the guy out. But here's what Lawrence Tribe admits. He basically walks through how – The work of the January 6th Select Committee in Congress can be the basis, along with the media coverage, of opening an an independent counsel investigation. And my point there is we've seen the political body, Congress, be politicized for the Select Committee. It's clearly a partisan witch hunt. 
it should be a partisan witch hunt if the Demo- if the Republicans had any sense and threw out the two people who are not acting as Republicans, Kinzinger and Cheney, but they didn't. So what we're hearing from Lawrence Tribe is he's basically saying to the public, look, we have done what we wanted. We lied in the media about what happened on January 6th. We exaggerated deaths. We described things as happening. We said Kamala Harris was in the Capitol when she wasn't. We used prosecutors' offices and the, uh, to, to do investigations where you have all kinds of people scared for their lives, therefore pleading guilty to something like trespass. And they probably broke the law. I've got no problem with somebody if they break the law. You prosecute them. I've got a problem when you're making stuff up, it looks like, to try to give people a hard time. Things like Kamala Harris was in the building, they said, therefore you're guilty of this crime, but she wasn't there. They knew that. So they're having to drop cases now, drop charges at least. And then on top of that, watch what happens. Larry Tribe basically says it. We're going to have the select committee from Congress, a political entity, publish reports, put out documents, spin things in the press. Lawrence Tribe is signaling to the press, here's how you should cover it. Here's the direction you should go in. And why is this being done? What you need to know is this is the the last hope, maybe the best hope. For the Democrats to try to change the equation in time for 2022 and 2024, mostly 2024, because if you make an independent counsel and if you make this independent investigation, which has subpoena power and real legal power, the the Congressional Select Committee is really a political witch hunt. It has very little. There's a real argument whether it has any real power. It's got to refer the power over to the Department of Justice. But when it, but the Department of Justice and in an in, in investigation, remember how Mueller would pull people before? And what was there? There was selective leaking to the press against Trump so that by the time you were halfway through the Mueller investigation, you thought there were smoking guns, 20 of them, in the Mueller investigation safe. Turns out there was nothing there. But we didn't know that. So what Lawrence Tribe is calling for on Friday, it's a call to arms to try to cripple Donald Trump and his followers, to try to limit Donald Trump and his followers' ability to function, because that's what the goal is. And, and why? Because they're afraid of the movement. They're not afraid of the establishment Republicans. They're not afraid of Liz Cheney. They're, not af- they're afraid of the grassroots populist movement that is embodied by... Donald J. Trump and the sweeping majority in their House. Now, let me be clear, whether the House lives up to it or not, the Republican House uh, is, is beyond, I'm, I, I'm beyond my guessing. I'm, I, I, somehow I doubt it, but that's what they're trying to stop. And you can look just in the recent past. In 2020, in the, fall, in the summer, Mark Elias, the Democrat super lawyer, was, they were doing press releases saying they hired a thousand Democrat lawyers. They were going to use the courts. They were going to go and they were going to get drop boxes and mail-in ballots. And they were going to get emergency rulings. And they were going to use the courts to expand voting. They were going to make sure people didn't get checked for security. They didn't check for photo ID, all this stuff. They weren't shy about it. Now, you can believe, I tend not to believe it, but you can believe they did only the things that were legal and they stopped short of doing anything that was improper. It looks like Zuckerbucks were spent in Wisconsin inappropriately. At least it looks like it. We'll see. It'll go to court, I guess. It looks like a lot of things were at least sketchy looking, but they advertised it. And Lawrence Tribe, Larry Tribe just advertised it. This is what we should do. Everybody get on board. Grassroots should demand it. Media should cover it. Donors should give to it. Congress and everyone should see You don't have to have a meeting to have a conspiracy. This conspiracy is happening in public. 
And there's only one target. It's the target is Trump and we the people. The target is the is the is we the people, the grassroots of this country. They're trying to take things back. That's what the game is. And this is lawfare. It's not unsophisticated. These are not people. By the way, they get paid coming and going. I'm sure Lawrence Tribe gets paid to place an essay in the Washington Post, probably thousands of dollars. I'm not sure of that, actually, but I would think. I don't know. I wish I knew that. Anyway, that's what you need to know. The signal, the bat signal's gone up. The tribe signal's gone up. And you can see where they're heading. The question is whether we can stop it. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back and talk with Brandon Weikert, and also we will visit with Natalie Winters. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our old friend, Brandon Weikert, who hasn't been on the program in quite a while, is with us now. His book is called Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. It came out about a year and a half ago. I think it was in either August or September of 2020 and uh, was ahead of a lot of the conversation that you've heard uh, even before there was a war, but about, uh, hey, who's who's doing what in space? Why is it important uh, for America and what it means? And so I br- welcome him back on the program. By the way, Winning Space is from um, one of my favorite publishers, uh, Republic Book Publishers. Um, so check that out. Winning Space, How America Remains Superpower. Welcome back, Brandon. How are you? I'm okay. Thanks for asking. And thank you for that nice intro. Um, as you know, the, the book opens up, yes, with a Russian space Pearl Harbor in the year <laughs> 2022 over Ukraine. So I hate to say that I told you so. I know that's not polite, but, uh, you know, here we are, sadly. I wish I, well, wish I wasn't right. Well, it, that's right. I mean, you're prescient in a lot of ways, that, of course, but also just in general, people, I think, uh, almost, you know, I, there's many things that we sort of caught up our knowledge on. You know, we, we in the last four or five years, we caught up our knowledge on the reality of uh, China. We caught up our knowledge on the reality of the need for nuclear power to solve the power problem long term, yes. you know, and on the question of space, we certainly did. And you're ahead of that. Um, but but let me pause. Um, you, you know, we are we distracted when we think of the things that are uh, threats to us? Now, I know there's a war on. You can't just, you can't look away from a war. Yeah. You've got to do something about it. But, it, you know, Russia fighting with Ukraine in terms of the things that America remaining a superpower. I'm not sure this is the top of the list. Well, unfortunately for us, the the enemy gets a vote. And, uh, <laughs> Good point. You know, the, point. The, the Russians, as you know, in the book, I make it clear that the Russians are a threat, but I don't think they're the number one threat. Um, but unfortunately, it looks like uh, Mr. Putin is very invested in this war. I don't know if it's going to end anytime soon. And the mm. longer it drags on without a decisive Russian victory, the more uh, aggressive Mr. Putin will get and the more desperate he will get because the Ukrainians are not going to surrender. They may run out of bullets, and that might be what happens. They run out of ammo and equipment, but they're not going to stop fighting. And therefore, that means that Putin's going to get bloodier and nastier with that population, which is going to and obviously uh, evoke some kind of reaction from the West, which is understandably sympathetic to the suffering of the people there. Uh, And that will eventually lead to, I fear, an asymmetrical and uneven or unpredictable escalation from the Russians. It could range from Russia using tactical nuclear weapons to flatten cities that are just too resistant to the Russians, 
or it could escalate all the way up to cyber attacks directed against European and NATO infrastructure, civilian possibly infrastructure, to stop us from fighting over there or lending support. Or more dangerously, the most, I think, dangerous would be an escalation in space. And we've already seen in the last few weeks, actually the last few months, uh, beginning in November around Thanksgiving, when Russia conducted that unpredicted, unknown uh, anti-satellite test, where they almost destroyed the International Space Station. Then they followed that on with, with what's going on recently, where Elon Musk and SpaceX came in at the request of Ukraine and autumn and gave uh, all of a sudden these Starlink satellites, about 40 units, uh, to Ukraine to make sure that Russians couldn't cut Ukrainians off from the Internet at the height of the invasion. And then more recently, you've had the head of the, the Russian space program, Roscosmos, Dmitry Rogozin, got into a Twitter war of sorts with uh, NASA over um, the, the economic sanctions directed against Russia's aerospace industry, in which Mr. Rogozin appeared to threaten the safety uh, of the American astronauts aboard the space station, as well as the safe functioning of the space station itself, which prompted Musk to step in again and say, hey, look, if the Russians aren't going to ferry American astronauts to and from the space station, don't worry, SpaceX will. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you got to love it. Musk is amazing. And I even I, you that's know, an he, escalation, though. That yeah, is a sign right. that the space war is growing and escalating. And we have to be careful that it doesn't go kinetic. That's yeah. the key. Uh, we're talking again with uh, Brandon Weikert. Uh, he's the author of the book Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Um, on uh, Twitter, he has a great uh, Twitter presence also. Um, and uh, back uh, one, for one second on this, on the places we co- we uh, collaborate or at least um, don't um, shoot at each other or, you know, and space, the space station is one. But there's other aspects, I think, you tell me, of of space where, you know, we're, we're not necessarily getting in each other's way. We're, we're understanding the, the, by the way, it's we, the Brandon on Twitter at we, the Brandon is his Twitter handle. Uh, um, is, 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 is all that up for grabs or more importantly, how is that not sort of ending right away? I mean, how, how are you supposed to collaborate? I know that right now there's back channel conversations between nuclear powers, right? Because you're, you know, we're saying, Hey, I know we're getting mad at each other. I, I know you didn't like that mid conversation with the, the polls or whatever, but like, stay cool. Right. Um, and, and I think, by the way, I think Putin exploits that more than, um, yes. than it benefits us, but in space, all from satellites and and the routes and the uh, whatever you call it, the orbits of satellites, the space station is is and you mentioned the first escalation. Is that worse than we know? Is it better than we know? Is it something where you're watching? What do you think? Well, I think it's actually going to get worse the longer the war in Ukraine drags on, and the, the more that we support Ukraine, which clearly we're going to keep doing that. Uh, and the longer that that war drags on, the more desperate Putin's going to get to look to look big and strong and to get his win. And that means that he will start attacking space assets directly. Uh, and so, you know, these areas of cooperation, what we're witnessing, in my opinion, on a larger scale, is the end of that post-Cold War unipolar order where the Americans basically called the shots in every area of life. And now you're watching the division of the world, at least between the autocratic states of Eurasia led by China and Russia versus the Western democracies led by America, maybe into many different parts. But right now, 
It's that those areas of cooperation that we all took for granted, like space, those days, in my opinion, are done. And uh, the risk now is with us, even though we are still talking through back channels, I don't know if we're listening to each other. Mm-hmm. And so the, the concern now is that as the war drags on, as it gets bloodier, as there's a call among all these different quarters to, quote, do something, and nobody really knows what we're supposed to be doing, but we want to do something. Uh, the Russians are going to get very nasty and angry because they're going to say, hey, look, you Americans are intervening in our war. It's an affair between us and the Ukrainians. So to keep you out of our business, we're going to go after your electronic linkages. We're going to knock out your ability to project power into our part of the world by knocking out those satellites. And when you do that, you also run the risk of secondary and tertiary negative impacts. When you blow up something in space, it creates debris that goes everywhere. That debris does not stop. It is in a vacuum. It's, it becomes like a bullet and it runs the risk of destroying other nearby space assets, not only of ours, but of other people's as well. Think of that old movie or 2013 movie, movie with Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, Gravity. And that's what we're thinking about, where we could risk losing access to space entirely by creating a massive debris field because a space war begins. And once America loses in space, we quickly lose on Earth because all of our power projection capabilities as a military goes through those satellite constellations. And yeah. if we lose those, it's over. Uh, Brandon Weikert's our guest, the author and the strategist um, on Twitter at, at We the Brandon, and and I really and I'm looking at your Twitter feed. You should have more followers because uh, oh. because because it, here's the thing: you say things that are um, either totally honest, which is what I believe, or you're able to play a, a bunch of different sides of things and make people think on all sides. And here's an example. A couple of days ago, um, uh, you tweeted uh, about this. My friends on the new right are correct to be skeptical of official government statements, but they're quite wrong to insist on using FSB slash GRU propaganda to counter the official U.S. government narrative. They're being played bigly as much as the mainstream media plays us all. So let that one stand there. That's basically saying to the new right folks, hey, I know you don't want to get drawn into a war, but don't parrot things that are clearly propaganda. But 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 but, you know, earlier in this, uh, let me find the um, uh, another tweet of yours. Um, You were talking about um, uh, about the idea that somehow. um, Oh, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, someone someone figured out that some woman that got indicted gave Tulsi Gabbard sixty dollars. And now that's the reason Tulsi Gabbard became a stooge for for Putin, which is to me, that's the epidemic of anyone who doesn't agree with the mainstream narrative. You're called a Putin stooge and a KGB artist. And so you, you have this ability to go back and forth because you're certainly not a you're not saying let's put a no-fly zone in and, oh, and, God, defend, and defend the Ukraine to the death. By the way, on Friday, 40 Republican senators signed a, a letter saying, put up a no-fly, give them the MIGs, put up a no-fly zone. Yeah. And, 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 you know, all, think of this. If you look at that list, and this is so important, I, I'm, I'm, talk, I'm talking about this on the radio as soon as I saw this, the list of senators who didn't sign, there's only eight. Jim yeah. Inho- Jim Inhofe, who's not exactly a moderate, okay. Right. Bill ha- Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, he's kind of a, a an ambassador type. Jerry Moran of Kansas, not a real conservative in a way, right? I mean, whatever. Right. Rand, Rand Paul, libertarian. Mike Rounds, I don't know what, not libertarian. Mike Lee, whatever Mike Lee is. Cynthia Loomis, libertarian, and Roy Blunt. Roy Blunt is as establishment as they come, yeah. but only eight of these senators, Republicans had the courage to stand up and say, I, I hate what's happening in Ukraine, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to sign a letter that is, is a demand that you start world war three. Right. Right. 
Well, and I just want to add one thing. Ukraine, going back to 1994 under Bill Clinton, when he demanded that Ukraine give up those 300 nuclear weapons the Soviet left behind in exchange for a fake promise, a ridiculous promise that if the Russians ever came back, the Americans would directly defend Ukraine in any invasion, which was a joke then and it's clearly a joke now. Um, Going back to the 90s, though, Ukraine has been an ongoing, slow-rolling Democratic Party failure. And what I don't understand is why so many Republicans for the last few months have been so keen on basically joining the Democrats in their failed Ukrainian policy. I do not want to see the Ukrainians get killed. I have a friend. We just got her out of of Ukraine last night after being trapped in Kharkiv for six weeks. I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for the Ukrainians. What's going on is wrong. But at the same time, we as the Republican Party, certainly and, and most definitely as the American you know, superpower, should not be risking a world nuclear war over this country. The Ukrainians have got to stand for themselves. And I'm fine that we gave them weapons and some intelligence and some medical equipment to let them get through the resistance phase. But at the end of the day, the idea that we are going to vote to risk a nuclear war by getting warplanes that are going to be possibly American warplanes shooting down Russian warplanes for humanitarian defense of Kyiv is despicable. It is a horrible, horrible thing to do. And it will not save the Ukrainian people because once a America and NATO get directly militarily involved, that's only going to antagonize the the Russians even more to fight even harder and not let go. So this is not going to end well if we follow through on these failed Democratic Party policies. And I don't know why the Republicans in Congress are so insistent on letting the Democrats lead them down to this this And then the only only, the only well, and and I'll tell you only politically, which is secondary to world war and to death in Ukraine. The Republicans will will distinguish themselves by making themselves look like the Democrats and look like the party of the stupidity. Right. I mean, you want to you want the American people to look up and say, what? That's not what we want. You just did it. Forty members of the GOP just did it. So um, I amazing, amazing. All right. uh, Last question. Uh, Brandon, Brandon Weikert, where where could this go? Give me hope. Where yeah. could this go? What, what? You know, you were just in another exchange. I don't know on Twitter. I was looking and someone was saying you, you were saying, hey, look, um, this is not Putin's not the kind of guy that goes, oh, well, this is really hard. I guess I'll just slow right. down here. He, he goes further. He says, OK, right. this is really hard. I'm going to you know, use a tactical nuclear weapon. You, you say and you've said for a long time, you said for a while, uh, give me some hope. Where could this go? That would be the way out. Well, whether he uses chemical or biological or nuclear weapons to, quote, soften up those targets that he's looking at uh, to, to make their Ukrainians stop resisting, I don't really think the Ukrainians are going to surrender under any circumstance. I just do not think that's where they are right now as a nation. And so what I think will happen is it's going to get very bloody and very nasty over the next six to eight weeks. And I think over that period of time, at that point, Putin will have bloodied the Ukrainians to such a point that he will then legitimately engage in diplomacy and basically tell Zelensky, who's already indicated, by the way, the leader of Ukraine, that whatever happens on the ground as leader, I'm going to let you have eastern Ukraine and I will guarantee that under no circumstance will my Ukraine join NATO. So that is all that from the beginning Putin has really wanted. And so after he bloodies and basically punishes Zelensky and the Ukrainians for daring to challenge Russian might. I think at that point, I think 
that Putin will step back from the brink, I hope, uh, and he will basically engage in diplomacy and say, I'll take eastern Ukraine, I'll take Crimea, and we're going to make sure Ukraine's neutralized, and then we're going to let you know, let bygones be bygones for now. But if if he thinks, Putin does, that there is a chance for victory, no matter how bloody, and he thinks he can get it in the next six to eight weeks, he might go for broke, and that's going to be the dangerous point. But there is hope. There's a diplomatic resolution still. And I think also that's why the former German Chancellor Gerard Schrader, even though the Germans and French say he's not doing it on our account, I think the real reason that Schrader showed up in Moscow yesterday is because he's representing covertly the interests of Zelensky, the French, and the Germans in trying to get a backdoor deal with Russia to de-escalate very soon. And I think that might be in the offing. I hope that's the case. Yeah, well, um, I, it's something. I mean, something's got to break. I, Biden I think has I, certainly taken himself out of the equation, which is really embarrassing as the supposed sole superpower. Our leader is not even part of this. But yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, but. no, that's OK. Um, the only problem is um, at a certain point, my concern is Putin is looking around and saying my popularity in my state because I control the media is, you know, 80 percent, 90 percent. I've got to control enough here and I've got nothing. They put me on an island. But I got nothing. I've got sanctions yeah. everywhere. I've got nothing except you know iran and china i'm just going to get everything i want knowing that yeah. i'm going to milk the ukraine for its breadbasket quality yeah. in the next uh you know decade or two to try to get back out of the sanctions anyway um i gotta run unfortunately brandon we're out of time but brandon weikert again his book is uh his book is well really worth reading in general winning space how america remains a superpower uh which is republic book publishers but especially in the context of the ukraine and also at we the brandon on twitter a good follow thank you sir for your time thank and we'll you. talk again soon yes sir all right we'll take a break everybody and we'll be right back that's brandon weikert it's ed martin here on the pro america report back in a moment Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And uh, you may recall, it's been a long time, actually, probably close to a year, that we had Raheem Kassam on the uh, program. And Raheem, of course, is a journalist. He he cut his teeth in... Uh, in the UK, kind of got uh, he either got famous or infamous <laughs> because he was uh, Nigel Farage's uh, right hand man. And uh, in fact, I saw somebody um, talk to somebody last week who saw Nigel Farage, and the conversation went from Nigel Farage, what's going on? And then they talked about Raheem, which is something Raheem is able to do amazingly. So he is now uh, running an online uh, periodical, I'd call it the National Pulse. Go to thenationalpulse.com. And it's been go- around for a while, uh, but what he's doing now is uh, breaking news and there's been three or four examples just in the last week where the national pulse has uh either got a source uh found out information and went and uh and published it and, and has dr- driven the national agenda so one of his reporters one of the writers over there is natalie winters and natalie winters joins us now natalie welcome to the program how are you thank you so much for having me i'm doing well well, so first of all, um, did I describe the National Pulse well enough? I kind of think you guys are bursting onto the national scene over these last month or two. I may, may feel like you've been doing it the whole time, but certainly getting a lot more attention. Is that, am I, did you describe it well enough? 
I think so. I hope I can live up to the expectations that you've placed on me. But no, I think this this news cycle has really allowed for us to kind of show our strength. So thank you for having me on. Well, you're welcome. Okay, so and uh, she's an investigative reporter, the lead investigative reporter, and also co-hosts her, co-host her own uh, podcast, the National Pulse Podcast. Um, okay, so what is what do we have here? We have, I love this, deleted web pages from the Obama era. And they show that what is being said publicly about the biolabs is just doesn't just square with what these websites said. Is that walk us through what we have, how you found it, why it's reliable? Tell us what the story is. Sure. So people may have heard the rumblings about the existence of these Ukrainian biolabs uh, a few days before Victoria Newland, a State Department apparatchik, as we like to call her, was testifying in front of Senator Marco Rubio. And she appeared to confirm the existence of these labs. But it was very curious because she didn't just come out right and say, well, These are not biological weapons facilities. She really just expressed concern uh, that these could fall into the hands of the Russians. So as an investigative reporter and as someone who never takes any official from the Biden (laughs) regime at their word, uh, my interest was certainly piqued. So I started looking into the story and particularly on the heels of COVID-19, which I'm sure most of your listeners know that narrative all too well of U.S. taxpayer dollars being sent to a Chinese Communist Party and Chinese military run lab uh, to fund deadly, deadly experiments on bat coronaviruses. So it wasn't really beyond the pale that a similar thing could be happening with any type of virus in Ukraine. Frankly, it, it seemed like a policy that, you know, the establishment that people like Anthony Fauci, people over at the Department of Defense would likely support. So to, to my amazement, uh, which it takes a lot to amaze me at this point now, um, I actually <laughs> I actually found a deleted article that documented how it was none other than former President Barack Obama all the way back in 2005 when he was a senator who actually spearheaded the negotiations between the U.S. Department of Defense and their Ukrainian counterparts to work and facilitate the construction or at least U.S. involvement and funding um, of a network of biolabs across Ukraine. So there's kind of two interesting components there. One is that it was the Department of Defense, as opposed to the National Institutes of Health, um, anytime that we are talking about the Wuhan Institute of Virology and taxpayer dollars being sent overseas to China, we were always talking about the NIH being the vessel that was getting the money overseas. So it's really curious that it was the Department of Defense involved in this contract. But even more, I would say, curious and frankly concerning, not just to our tax dollars, but really to the the safety of the world writ large, um, is the type of pathogens that this lab, this one facility uh, based in the city of Odessa, has actually been dealing with. So this article, um, which was also cross-posted to a kind of quarterly journal that the United States Air Force Academy puts out, so it is a very legitimate article, um, Mm -hmm. but talked about how this lab was working not just with plague, but with anthrax, but with a host of pathogens that I can barely even pronounce. And if you look them up, they're very, very, very scary. Um, But we found a separate report just from a year later. So this article that I'm talking about is from 2010. But we found a separate report from 2011 coming from the National Academy of Sciences, which I know we don't like to trust the experts because they've (laughs) proven time and time again that they're not deserving of that moniker. But nonetheless, this is a, you know, a kind of scientific body that people like Anthony Fauci and his, you know, establishment scientific colleagues would would look up to and take their words um, at face value. So it was really interesting that this body put out a report 
on these Ukrainian biolabs. And they actually noted that specifically the facility that Obama helped fund is one of only two labs in the entire country of Ukraine, of which there are about 4,000 total laboratories, that has the, the clearance and the ability to work with pathogens of the most dangerous group. That is the first level pathogen as opposed to just the second level. In Ukraine, it's inverted the, the right, uh, right. in terms of the order of pathogens. Right. So that was also really, really interesting. So we kept digging into the story Frankly, as you know, the fact checkers and the mainstream media outlets continue to dig their heels into the narrative that the U.S. wasn't funding biolabs, which is just subjectively false. Um, but what was so interesting is that a lot of these labs, of which, which there are more than just the one that Obama was, was integral to funding, they were actually all, or at least most of them, former bioweapons facilities uh, kind of contracted out by the then Soviet Union. Hmm. And there were a lot of reports um, from, again, D.C.-based think tanks, the kind of establishment think tanks uh, that people, you know, on the left and the mainstream media love to cite all the time, but actually documenting that these labs were doing experiments with, quote, the windows wide open. Um, so kind of a similar narrative, kind of some, some deja vu to what was happening in Wuhan. Uh, we're talking again with Natalie Winters. By the way, she's over at uh, Twitter, at Natalie G. Winters. You talk about a rose between two thorns. Your uh, Twitter photo is uh, on one side is Raheem, the other <laughs> side's Bannon. But there you are. Uh, but uh, so, uh, Natalie, um, the context here is important because people may remember, uh, but we remind them, in 94, Ukraine, having you know broken out of the Soviet Union as it collapsed, had a bunch of nuclear weapons. And the so-called Budapest Agreement was that Ukraine said to America and to uh, the Europeans and to Russia, we'll give up our nukes. You guys, uh, you know, we don't want to be the we, we, we don't want to be the fighting group. We're just going to be here and be a breadbasket and leave us alone. Well, over the you, as you recount, the 11 years, 12 years, then after that, the uh, Americans is pretty clear we were doing more there than um, I mean, we weren't doing nuclear weapons, but there was stuff happening that we were doing. In other words, uh, you know, whether the biolabs were research only, I don't know. No one's tried that gamut yet. They made still. Um, but clearly the American involvement in Ukraine at a, what's say strategic level had shifted. It wasn't just that we needed a place to do bio labs. I don't think it was that there was lots of reasons that the Ukraine uh, fed the advantage of sort of the vision of the establishment still in the Cold War mentality. Does that sound like I'm drawing too many conclusions from the sort of facts we're seeing? No, I, I think I think you're totally spot on. And I think that I think the, the establishment, they really, really love Ukraine. They love this narrative that they've been able to kind of extend their influence over there, whether it's through joining the EU or at least their efforts to get them to do that or NATO expansion. So I think that is why you see them whether it's an issue of what's going on right now with the invasion or even these biolabs, so, so, so staunch in their defense of what they've been doing there and why they think they can get away with just these bald-faced lies that there's no U.S. government involvement um, in these biolabs. And I think, I think you're very correct because if the narrative that they wanted to run with was that, oh, well, we were funding these biolabs you know, to make sure that the pathogens didn't fall into the hands of the Russians. Well, then Victoria Newland should have said that when she was being asked right, by exactly. Marco Rubio. Right. And frankly, I think this whole story would have been kind of stopped right then and there. I, I mean, we would have looked into it, but it wouldn't have probably gotten all the traction that it did because of her very, very curious answer. Um, so whether it's, you know, just ignorance on their part or something, you know, malintent, who knows? Only time will tell. 
um, there is an, an interesting, I think, phenomenon going on with Ukraine. Uh, yeah. Natalie Winters, again, is the uh, lead investigative reporter over at the National Pulse, co-hosts the National Pulse podcast also uh, with Raheem Kassam. Her piece is uh, about the deleted web pages that show that Obama, as a U.S. senator from mm-hmm. Illinois, was involved in the Ukraine biolab. Um, and there's something there. Here's a here's a question in the modern era. Somebody like you, Natalie, you publish this. You're over on Twitter, Instagram, and and you can sort of tell by the reaction uh, what's happening. Did anybody come forward and say, ah, let me explain it to you? Or was it the usual, you know, uh, it's Natalie Winters is a is a KGB agent. I mean, what was the what was the response? You took the words right out of the troll's mouth. (laughs) I can't tell you how many responses I got accusing me of being a KGB agent, agent of Russian disinformation. But it was actually very interesting. Um, Someone from some, you know, D.C. based kind of globalist think tank, they actually put out a report kind of itemizing and categorizing which news outlets were the top news outlets in spreading this so-called conspiracy theory, which it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just frankly, it's not even a theory. It's it's evidenced. It's it's an actual fact. Um, and the National Pulse was was number one by by leaps and bounds in terms of getting the story out. So people started digging in, you know, some of these blue checkmark people on Twitter digging into kind of what the National Pulse is all about. And we have no links to anything Russian, anything Russian state <laughs> right. state media. But we were accused of, you know, working hand in hand with, with the Kremlin just for putting this story out. You know, the National Pulse has been banned on Twitter for, for over a year now. Um, Raheem and I are still active on there and we use a bunch of other platforms, too. Um, but I think it's very, very interesting. And frankly, I think it's the purest form of hypocrisy as you see certain individuals accusing us of working in concert with these, you know, state run media outlets. Again, we're an outlet that is probably worked so, so, so hard to expose the influence of Chinese state-run media um, right. in the United States. But it's I think we see a very similar kind of state-run propaganda campaign coming from the United States and the State Department on this issue and really attempting to silence critics, or not even critics, but just people who are attempting to expose the truth, like us at the National Pulse. And it's no different than what they do in Russia. Yeah. All right. Natalie Winters at Natalie G. Winters on Twitter. You can follow there. The nationalpulse.com is where she's the lead investigative reporter. I will go over there and I'll make sure to post this article. Uh, Natalie, it's it's very interesting time. I think more and more voices like yours and and investigations like yours are breaking through. But I encourage you. It maybe doesn't feel like that every day. So uh, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. And we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson boldly hosted a hearing on COVID policy called COVID-19, a second opinion. The hearing room was filled with expert after expert specializing in infectious diseases. Listen to what these experts had to say. One witness was Dr. Aaron Cariotti who was fired by the University of California at Irvine for not being vaccinated, although his natural immunity provides greater protection against the virus. He said the argument for mandates collapses now that we have clear evidence that COVID vaccines do not prevent infection or transmission of the virus. Dr. Cariotti called attention to the unprecedented 40% increase in all-cause mortality among working-age adults from 18 to 64. The public health establishment has provided no explanation for that shocking rise in mortality, which is not directly related to COVID, though it may be due to its vaccines and the lockdowns. Dr. Robert Malone testified that the vaccines 
do not prevent infection, viral replication, or even transmission. So why are they mandated? They cannot produce herd immunity, Dr. Malone said, even if every man, woman, and child in America is vaccinated. Dr. Richard Urso, an expert on inflammation, which is usually the first symptom of respiratory viruses, including COVID, stressed the importance of taking medication in the first few days while the virus is replicating. Dr. Peter McCullough said there are only two bad outcomes, hospitalization and death. So the overriding need is for widely available early treatments that can be taken as soon as symptoms appear. Because COVID is a mass casualty event, Dr. McCulloch said we can't afford to wait for randomized trials that are not forthcoming. These and other testimonies at Senator Johnson's hearing make plain that the scientific community is far from a monolithic entity. Differing opinions are a dime a dozen, which should dispel the legitimacy of across-the-board mandates. If not even the scientists can agree on the best course of action, why should politicians be able to mandate a one-size-fits-all approach? These decisions belong to we the people. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we think it's time to take Washington back from the power brokers. At phyllisschlafly.com, we're organizing a grassroots movement to stand against the deep state bureaucrats who control government. For the latest strategies, go to phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Just got a minute or so to wrap things up. Let me do two things. Let me uh, tell you, uh, th- please visit ProAmericaReport.com. And when you do, it will kick through uh, to our website and you can search for all these great interviews. ProAmericaReport.com. Okay, check that out. All these great interviews. If you like one of these interviews, pass them on to other people. So follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Get the word out on this stuff. It's important. Second thing is go check out the NationalPulse.com. I knew Raheem Kassam was working hard. He's a hardworking guy. I knew he was out there uh, uh, working hard, but I didn't quite know how uh, strong the website was and what they're up to. Natalie Winters was strong. Great interview. Um, and it's a strong website. The, thenationalpulse.com. Check it out. Thank you, as always, to Noah Dingley, our great producer, Joanna Spilger, our associate producer, and thank you for listening. I'm Ed Martin. We'll be back tomorrow. It's the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. America Report on The Answer, San Diego.